Hello and welcome to the Cricket Tragics podcast. This is episode four and tonight I'm joined by the cricketing professor, Mr. Alex Cameron, and the enforcer at the top of the order, Jeffrey Fredo Blitzkriegson. My name is Josh and I also like cricket. Tonight we're going to cover the fourth Ashes test and Australia's retention at the end. We'll be looking at no balls. What are they? Who does them? And what does it mean? And of course, the cricketing week. So strap on your pads and follow us out into the middle. How's it going? <laughs> what That's did you think of one. my fancy, uh, fancy new intro there? That was well done, mate. Put on your pads. Uh, it had, it had, like a, it. had a lot of rhythm to it. I thought. I don't want to make any guesses, but I don't think that's the first time you practiced it, right? In the mirror, every every morning, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> before bed. No, I thought that was really good. I liked that. I liked my nickname. And um, I, did you notice after you've gifted Fredo that nickname that he's changed his name on the group chat to the Enforcer? Oh, who did that to me? I didn't do that. Uh, Jeff's it wasn't claiming the, it. Oh, it was... <laughs> Uh, it does feel a bit shameful giving yourself a nickname, you know. I feel oh, like mate, it's never someone else. It's it's heaps cooler if someone else gives you a nickname. Right? <laughs> it's a sign of your notoriety. Uh, I, I, I for some reason I thought Fredo had done that himself. So obviously, um, I'll have to yeah. I have to think of something for you, Josh. Aren't I? Well, there's plenty of non-complimentary things I'm sure you can think of. <laughs> mate, you just got to hit a good good total on the weekend. You'd That's right. right. Well, it's it's coming up to the pressure end of the season. We're going to have a few omissions for the Fat Cats finals campaign, but I'm going to be in throughout. I think Alex is in throughout as well. I am. Pressure on us, Alex. We're going to have to get some totals. Yeah, you know, man. I don't, I don't think I've batted above number seven all season, so I'm, but, I'm ready to go. You're anchoring yes. the tail, mate. But the thing is, you run out yeah. of partners. That's your problem. I've been well, pressuring I mean, the captain heavily to try and get Alex up the order, but <laughs> I so far have been <laughs> unsuccessful. You, you might get your wish coming this uh, this weekend or next weekend, I think, because um, we're going to be a bit strapped. I have no news more than you, but um, you know, just looking at the uh, the roster. That's right. We have a few big outs for the final, so yeah. But that's exciting, Alex. Yeah, yeah I've been batting well in the nets as well, so um, mate, smashing yeah. them, smashing them, putting the hours yeah. in, man. You guys are big trainers. I'm impressed. <laughs> I love it. Perhaps too much. Someone from the club the other day told me that I train more than the first graders. I thought, I didn't know how to feel about that. Sort of there's, slightly there's embarrassed. The, there's Did the you bar, say, mate. yeah, I look better than them as well? Uh, well, you know, I, I do live in reality, Josh. So, um, no, <laughs> I, I like didn't me. say that. <laughs> but, yeah, we do like a hit, don't we, Fredo? Oh, yeah, always. Followers on our Instagram channel will know that I'm doing a challenge this month to try and hit 2,000 balls, getting nowhere near it. But what I've become really good at is uh, using the, the wanger. The yeah, throwing thing. I was doing it to Josh last night. I could tell after my first one, he sort of said, that was cool. He was playing everything off the back foot. Because, <laughs> you know, the thing with the wanger is they're designed for a certain speed. And if you don't bowl them at that speed, they either hit the ground right in front of you or go for full tosses. Mm. So you can't really control the speed yep. so much. And so I was coming in. I had a, a wanger that was meant to be thrown at about, you know, like 105, 110 Ks an hour. And, yeah, I was, they were going through to Josh pretty pretty well. What did you think of that, Josh? Do you prefer that to the to the ball machine? Mate, anytime I see a sidearm or a wanger like that, I'm just expecting short stuff. And as you would have seen last night, I was just getting on the back foot straight away. Like, oh, here comes a wanger. Just get just get ready for a couple of pull shots. But they weren't all coming down short. So The, the problem that I have with them, maybe it's just because the people that are using me against me have no idea and they're deadly, is it's really hard to pick up what they're going to do. So 
like you say, you're going to get a short one or a full toss and it's just you're not getting that consistent go with it. But if you get someone that actually knows yeah. what they're doing with them, I think I'd find it easier to actually hit them, but I'm always struggling to pick them up. Yeah. That's just me. I prefer a ball machine because you can put it on a spot and you can just practice one shot over and over and over. True. When I was doing it last night, because I'm, I'm, so, I'm full of confidence now because I've literally done about 600 of them over the last yeah. week or so. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, I could get really good at this and make a job out of it. And, th- and then I thought, and then I thought, I'm throwing to, to Josh and I'm like, oh, Josh, you know, he must be really appreciating this. I'm really putting on a good length. It's going well. And I thought, oh, if I had to do this to Fredo, I'd need to protect myself in some way, right? I'd need to put a net in. Like, I don't think, I don't think I'd feel comfortable coming in and throwing them at you because, it, you know, I'd have to wear a helmet and maybe protective gear. If you're stuff. putting on a good length, man, they're more likely coming back at you twice as fast. <laughs> I'm not sure what you're saying. Are you complimenting Fredo on his power game or uh, you making comment about my lack of power game? <laughs> oh, no, no. You're, you're a, sort nah, of a, no. a man of class and a sophistication oh, you. you're adding. No, Fredo is more of a blunt, blunt object. I appreciate um, you've come back to stroke my ego there a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah, those sidearms, yeah. well, the thing that I notice about them is when you've got a real bowler, I'm like trying to focus on how's the bowler holding the ball in his mm. hand to see what I'm expecting to come down. Mm. And bowling machines and sidearms don't give you that. It makes a big difference who's releasing the ball in the bowling machine. I, I must admit, you get someone that isn't good behind the bowling machine and isn't like giving you the signal as they're letting it go through yeah. it's it's a lot harder especially if you've got to crank that's up. the thing for me there's just no visual cues mm. with the bowling mm, machine right. and i know you can do it with the the hand goes down but it just doesn't work for me i think i've actually hurt my wrist a couple of times there not from me here on the wrist but just from holding the bat because i'm just not in the right place at the right time and the wrists are not locked at the right time uh but yeah anyway all right boys well we're going to talk about the fourth ashes test and so, look, for our listeners, I'm going to do a very quick recap. I'm going to take one big breath and try and smash it all out quickly so that we can get into the fun stuff. In the last podcast, I asserted that there were some media commentators who were saying that after England won the third test at Headingley, that momentum had swung heavily back in their favour. Turns out there was some truth to that rumour, with England dominating the Ford test at Old Trafford all the way up until they weren't. And the cricketing gods intervened and sent down their message, Noah, it's time to build an ark. England won the toss and put these Aussies into bat. The Aussies batted for about a day and got over 300. No huge scores in the innings, but some handry contributions across the board. Manus Labaskakni and Mitch Marsh both hitting 51. 48 to Travis Head, 41 to the Manchild, and a very handy cameo from Mitch Stark at the end, chipping in with 36. Chris Wokes took Pfeiffer for England. And reminded everybody that he, like Mark Wood, should probably have been picked for England from the start. 317 from the Aussies felt like a marginally subpar total. And across day two and a half of day three, didn't England prove that to be true? England racked up just shy of six squillion runs in their first innings. And by squillion, I mean 100, almost 600 runs. And they did it at about five runs and over. Zach Crawley at the top of the order hit a staggering runnable innings of 189. And Johnny Bastow continued his love affair with the limelight and finishing stranded on 99, not out. Pretty much everyone else got in on the party as well. 84 to Joe Root, 51 to Ben Stokes, 54 to Moen Alley, and 61 to Harry Brook. Josh Hazelwood took five wickets for Australia. Whatever. England, a first innings lead of 270. Australia wobbled along not too badly in their second innings to round out day three and get the deficit down to 160. Warner made a bit of a start. But Smith, Uzi, and Head were all out cheap. Mark Wood dictating for England again. And to day four, 
match situation not looking good for Australia and weather permitting, looking certain that England would wrestle back the series to two all, but weather did not permit. And a surge for 30 overs through the middle of the day, day four was completely washed out. The 30 overs was enough for Marnus and Marsh to build a partnership, Marnus getting to 111 before being the only wicket of the day. Not much on offer for the English bowls on day four. Then that was it. Day five, completely washed out. Australia retaining the urn. England no longer able to win the Ashes. Um, boys, what did you make of it? Hard to watch in parts. It was. I, I feel like it's a little bit anticlimactic. Leading into this test, things were shaping up really exciting, highly likely that England were going to go 2-2 when it was set up for this massive decider in the Oval in the fifth test. But now a couple of potential results are off the table. England can't win the Ashes. Australia will definitely retain the Ashes. Australia has the opportunity to win the Ashes. and it's Or it could just bucket down rain across the fifth test. and It could be could be curtains. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it was interesting how this time the Australian team didn't celebrate quite as much as they did last time when they got the when they knew that they were going to retain the urn back. I like the idea that you know that that they're really saying this unfinished business we're gonna you know we're trying to go up three one in this series. Because I kind of remember the the fifth test of the 2019 series as being like sort of like the Australians didn't really care anymore because I mean obviously they did, but the feeling coming through the media was that it's already retained. We haven't retained it in England for many, many years. And so that's all good. And so I really like Pat Cummins' attitude, there was no big hubbub about it. He's like, yep, it's good. We'll return the ashes. Uh, we were very lucky there, but, you know, we're going to try and go up 3-1. 3-1 is what I predicted at, in our first podcast, by the way. So <laughs> I thought that might come up. I was watching it. My prediction is out because I said 3-2 to Australia. And in the first podcast, oh. you correctly pointed out that I was trusting the weather too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what else do I think about that? Zach Crawley, you know, the amount of play and misses he has. I know that every year and a half or something, he gets a massive score and he kept they keep him in the team for that. It's very Dave Warner-esque, isn't it? Well, Dave Warner's sort of averages about 40, above 40 or even 45. That's Jack true. Crawley, but, but before this 100 and whatever he got, he averaged like 28, right? So I, I think it's all hubris and it really pisses me off. I think that I, we've got to do a podcast just on baseball and like all the things that, that about it that piss me off. But I've never really had anything personally against the English. They're just acting like a bunch of idiots. I feel like England has been taking a few easy routes with this series. It, things have blown up in their faces a little bit and they are clutching at straws, perhaps. They're saying... No, ours is the moral victory because Australia won't play in the spirit of the game. Or actually, no, we didn't really come here to win because that's not the purpose of this team. The purpose of this team is to be entertainers, and we've achieved that. So we've got the moral victory, you know. <laughs> and then they can refer to the rain and say, "Oh, well, we yeah. were on the charge," which, which they were. You can't make too many excuses when you're like two one down in the series, and like, "Oh, the rain—that's the reason why we haven't retained." You're really grasping at straws there. I think it's a bit of what, a bit what's weak. the term English exceptionism? Is that what we would call it? Exceptionalism. Exceptionalism. Exceptional. Yeah. I'm confused yeah. with that. I don't know. Am I saying that they the English are exceptional or they like to have <laughs> <laughs> anyway? I think there's a bit of a feedback loop happening, right? So England has had success in Test cricket in the last 18 months since Brendan McCullum has taken over. And then there's the media who's pumping up this baseball narrative. While it's going well, the players are then convinced that yes, this approach works. Ben Stokes is like, yes, be aggressive. But the moment that it doesn't work, it's looking very exposed. Here we are after four tests, and it's 
been a fascinating story that's played out with each of the captains. We've talked a lot about Pat Cummins. Well, I have anyway. I've been critical of him. But um, the Ben Stokes perspective now as well, and you mentioned his aggressive declaration in the first test, and now in the fourth test, knowing that rain was on the way and just no aggressive declaration coming at all. Um, Look, I know we've said before that captaincy decisions look great or bad depending on the results, but it is interesting. You know, same with Cummins, like a second test when he persisted with pace on bowling when, when Ben Stokes is belting him to all parts. And, you know, some of his decisions defensive field it's hard to watch sometimes but overall Cummins has played such a straight bat in the press and he's clearly a leader of the Australian team there doesn't seem to be any discontent despite them going through all sorts of scandal and being under lots of pressure the players seem united it's harmonious camp seemingly uh, I I think that's the thing I think it's the attitude attitude goes a long way like what Alex was saying about how the Pommies have been acting their attitude is different. You have two completely different teams of attitude. And I think it goes a long way to to being up 2-1. It's fascinating because Australia usually has a reputation of being, you know, what was the old term for, for David Warner? Attack dog. Australia yeah. was their aggressive brand of cricket. But now, even in the tactics, we're seeing something different. The Aussies are playing a more patient game, more defensive mm. game. Test so. cricket. What's interesting is, okay, they've got a strategy from the beginning and they've just stuck to it for four test now which is okay we're going to put the field back straight away and we're just we're going to play very defensively if they want to hit over the top then you know it's dangerous for them to do so and i think that more times than not that seems to have worked it's definitely failed sometimes especially in the in the last test but you know it's a strategy that over four tests has got them up two one possibly could have been two two i think it's admirable given the amount of flack that they've got about that sort of negative field placings that they're stuck to it because that's what they believe was going to win, and they just stuck to it from the beginning. Very interesting. And I think it just sets the fifth test up so nicely. England are claiming now that they are defeating that strategy with winning the third test and being dominant in the fourth, and that may or may not be true, (laughs) and we'll find out in the fifth test. It'll be fascinating to see whether Australia, as you say, stay true to this strategy they've had throughout, or whether... The fourth test and the way it was traveling has given them a scare. They haven't changed their team, so but Australia looks like they're bringing back in Murphy, possibly. Mm-hmm. Green could be in doubt because yeah. Marsh is playing so well. Yeah. They've got Stark that's got that injury with his shoulder, and then you could have Nessa coming in, which would be amazing. I need to see him get in the mm-hmm. ashes. Yeah, I can't wait to see what will happen. I unfortunately I suspect that we won't see Nessa but Nisa, but yeah, it would be great. Would be great if he got a run. Be cool. I think they've got to pick Murphy, and they've got to put him on the bowl reasonably early. They've got to get yep. him into the game. That was the problem in the third test that they picked him. They sort of didn't throw him into the attack early enough, and so he was always, you know, going to struggle. He needs overs under his uh, under his belt. He needs to get into the game quickly. Yeah, and so that's what I hope they do. And it's interesting totally. in regards to spinners as well. In the fourth test, Australia didn't take a spinner in. Um, and we saw in Australia's second innings, Marnus and Mitch Marsh were looking really comfortable, but it was only until they brought on who you would call, well, I would consider Joe Root more than a part-time spinner because his batting is so good. No one talks about his bowling, but when he came on to bowl, he was very effective. Look, I know there were other circumstances in the game. Marnus had just passed his 100, and so his maybe his attitude and approach changed, so that may have changed his shot selection as well, but 
Root started to really trouble Marnus, and he was out quite quickly when Root mm. came on to bowl. So Australia saw the conditions in the fourth test and thought, no, we're not taking a spinner in. But there were periods in the game where England had a spinner be really effective. If it was me, I'd be taking a spinner in. That's usually Australia's policy with Nathan Lyon, just take him everywhere. Yeah, um, interesting to see how it goes. No, I'm not sure about this. I know that actually Marsh is, has a little bit of a strain as well. Yeah. Don't know what we're going to see. Yeah, very interesting. All right, boys. Well, why don't we talk about the issue of the bowling of no balls? Alex has been digging around some data. We have seen in recent tests that there has been some no balls bowled at really crucial times. And the no balls specifically that I'm referring to are front foot no balls. So for our listeners, look, maybe let's just do a very quick premise of cricket. What is a no ball? So for the unacquainted, cricket is this daft game where everyone goes out in the field and um, there's a hard flat bit of grass or concrete in the middle and there's a couple of sticks at each end with little bits of wood on the top and it's all brittle and if the ball hits it, it all falls apart. And so you'll have one team at one end who's delivering or bowling the ball down and then someone standing at the other end with a stick trying to hit the ball. And when they hit the ball and it goes out in the field, you run up and down and that counts as runs on the score and then the fielding team tries to get it as quick as they can. And and so it's called bowling the ball. It's either called a ball or a delivery. And so in the game, the ball is either in play or out of play. Um, the ball begins to be in play when a bowler starts to run in to hurl the ball down at the batter. When when the ball's in play and the bowler releases the ball, it can't just get there in any old way. Typically what happens is the ball has usually hits the ground once before it gets to, to the batter. It doesn't have to, but there are certain rules around how that ball arrives. Those rules are there to give the batter a fair opportunity to hit the ball and, and get runs. And if it doesn't arrive there in a certain manner, then that's called a no ball. So this terminology, no ball, you might also call it a no delivery. It's an unfair delivery. And a no ball can occur for a variety of reasons. When the bowler approaches, their feet have to be in the right places. There are limits to how high the ball can bounce. If the ball doesn't bounce, there are some limits as well. If it approaches the batter on the full above waist height, that's called a no ball. These rules are in place for safety reasons. And usually what happens when a no ball is bowled, the ball becomes dead. A run is assigned to the batting team, or they'll get an opportunity to have what's called a free hit, depending on the format of cricket that you're playing. And then the bowler will have to re-deliver that ball. So it's, it's advantageous to the batting team. They get more opportunities to score runs. The particular no ball that we want to talk about today and that's called the front foot no ball. And so in cricket, there's a white line in front of the stumps or the wickets at each end, those bits of timber that are brittle and can break. And when a bowler comes in and they hurl the delivery down at the batter, their front foot, at least a portion of it, has to be behind the white line called the crease. It's called the popping crease for appropriate cricketing language. What we've seen happen quite a bit in elite cricket, uh, bowlers they're trying to get their foot as close to the batter as possible and they're overstepping. And so when they bowl and their foot goes in front of that line, it's a no ball. And so when it's a no ball, a, bat, a batsman can't be dismissed. And as I explained before, there's all of those things that apply around assigning a run, re-bowling the delivery. In recent international matches, the World Test Championship final, we saw a couple of no balls bowled where batsmen were initially out 
but then returns to the crease to score bulk extra runs. And then it's been happening in the ashes as well. Alex has actually done a little bit of background work on this because we were like, well, what's happening? I don't remember there being so many no balls in elite cricket, but lately it just seems to be in the news all the time. So Alex, tell us a little bit about the digging that you've done. Um, yeah, Josh. So I managed to get my hands on uh, a whole lot of data. So essentially every ball that's been bowled in test cricket since 2002. How many balls do you think have been bowled in the 760 test matches that I got the data from? <laughs> Just a ballpark figure. Oh, 760. Okay, so there's not there's 90 overs in a day. Yeah. Mate, that's Unless I've got a sheet of ply to write this on and a chippy's pencil, I can't work no, this so shit out. 450. <laughs> times six times how many tests did you say there was well just just make it 700 if you get close i'll, I'll yeah, give it to you I can do he's that. adding up on his phone i am <laughs> that's all right i mean like i just six, want to see how close he gets because that times 700 we've got just shy of two million deliveries i've got one million eight hundred and ninety thousand. jesus am i in my ballpark yeah you're, you're definitely ballpark um, nah, tell me i'm the, good uh, <laughs> it's a, you actually went over you it's get actually on. about um it's uh, one million. Well, slow over rates, mate. <laughs> <laughs> True. It's uh one million five hundred and fifty-eight thousand eight hundred twenty-one in the database that Jesus I've got. Jesus Christ! Wow. Um, yeah, and so that levels out at about nineteen hundred and fifty balls per game. All right, how many? What's the average number of uh, no balls? Do you think a bowled? Per test over the whole period. In fact, it changes a lot from year to year. But we're considering the whole period. How many no balls do you think are bowled per game? Thirty. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to go with fifteen. I'm going with fifteen as an average. Yeah, so you're much you're much closer. It's twelve. But but there's a lot of variation in the amount of no balls, and that's probably the first thing we're going to try and guess. Do some educated guessing about the reasons behind. If we look at 2003. The average amount of no balls per game were 21. But more or less after 2003, this continues to go down to a low point of four no balls per test match in 2018, a really big decrease. And now it's on the way back up. I mean, I'm trying to think of some good reasons as to why we're getting this decrease. What do you guys think about the idea that as soon as um, as the third umpire became a bigger thing in test matches, umpires got a bit lazy with calling no balls because they said, okay, if there is a no ball and there's a wicket, it's going to be, it's going to be overturned. So I'm fine. And if I don't call it, nobody's going to check it. And so, you know, I can, I can focus more on the LBWs and, uh, you know, the edges and I don't have to look down as the bowl is passing through thoughts guys. Yeah. Well, I think it's an interesting point you make about the technology and so that time period that you're talking about for the data set from 2002 through until fairly recently, the video tech has advanced greatly and is gradually being used for more and more things. So I think maybe the awareness of professional cricketers has gone up about no balls in that context. So maybe that's why there's been a decrease in the, in the number of no balls, perhaps. It's all a bit yeah. funny, isn't it? Because we're sort of this conversation has come up with that for us because it seems like there's the prevalence is is more and maybe that is true in recent times but what we saw in the data was that the overall trend was downwards for presence yeah. of nobles with that data i don't know what's uh, how detailed it is does it tell you is it nobles across the board or is it front yeah no so it, no it's it's nobles across the board but yeah. from looking at some other data more than 90% of them are front foot nobles yeah. um, um, and so we we're, we're sort of being on the right the right track yeah right 
I think my argument that, especially after like 2012, I think they're sort of seeing, okay, if I make a mistake, it's going to be overturned uh, by the third umpire. So I'm just not going to pay attention to the no balls and, and look straight ahead. And then it, we see this uptick in 2021. It was from the beginning of the second World Test yeah. Championship that they started using the third man to look at whether a ball was a no ball or not every ball. Yeah. And so we're starting to see this uptick here. Mm. And so, I mean, that's the narrative I give to to what I see in the data. Which should be happening, like really, everything's sort of going downhill, and the and then as soon as twenty twenty one starts happening, it's t- it took a massive spike up, going from seven in twenty twenty to twelve in in twenty twenty one. That's like a thirty or forty percent increase. That's a big mm. increase. Well, it's interesting, right? I guess when we sort of had this idea, we'd look at the data. That was part of the expectation that we had. We were anticipating seeing an increase when. Mm you know, the technology started checking the front foot on every single delivery. Mm. And I think that makes sense too, that the umpires would prefer to have that technology to help them, given that the ball travels from the bowler's hand and arrives at the batsman in less than half a second. And the umpire is expected to look down at the bowler's foot at the crease, but then still look up and see the trajectory of the ball and where it pitches in that period of time. I think it's amazing that umpires have been expected to do that for as long yeah. as they have, yeah. um, I know that technology didn't exist for the majority of cricketing history. So what what else could they have done? Maybe you could have got a, the equivalent of a square leg umpire, but at the bowlers end. Now that's an interesting I, idea. I think what the uh, <laughs> the main issue about all this is, I think the responsibility needs to go back more towards the player and just make sure that they've got their run up. Like it's not that hard to get your run up right. Yeah, to run in every ball and make sure that you're landing. Behind the line with your heel every time. Like they're professional athletes. They should be able to measure their run up. Well, they measure their run up every bloody time. They're all out there marking their run up every damn time they play a game. They should know as I'm running in, this is my stride. This is where I land. This is where I start my run up before the pitch. And they should be hitting the mark. I mean, like these guys are coming in and they're not just like a little bit over the line. Some of them are a fair bit over the line. What's happening in their prep and their training that's causing this to happen? Agree, mate. And the thing that's always puzzled me as well is that why is there such a desire to push the front foot to that extremity? Just bring your foot back a couple of inches. It's not going to change the length of your delivery that much, right? If it's on a a goodish length. It's not like shifting your foot back three inches is going to change you from bowling a good length delivery to a half tracker. That's no. that's not no. what's going to happen. And so it's always puzzled me why there's such resistance. I have um, an interesting piece of data about this. Um, so I actually wanted to look at the amount of runs that were scored off no balls versus non-no balls. Mm-hmm. And so if the argument was um, was that you know, go, getting as close to the line as possible and maybe going over by a little bit would you know, allow you to be more economical, um, then you would expect that um, the amount of runs scored off no balls would be less than the runs scored off normal deliveries. But it's almost exactly the same. The amount of runs off the bat scored off a no ball is about 0.5 runs per no ball, and it's about 0.5 runs per normal delivery as well. So it doesn't change. And it's the same for buyers and for um, leg buyers as well. So is, does that is that making sense to you, Josh? I got a nod of approval from Fredo. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm puzzled because I'm thinking this through, thinking 
Well, the attitude of the batter is it, it's not necessarily different because the bats, batter doesn't know that it's going to be a yeah. low ball. So the shot selection will probably be based on where the ball pitches rather than rather than whether it's a no ball or not. The only exception to that being when in, let's say, short form cricket, when a no ball is bowled, then the batter gets a free hit, free hit. And when, yeah. when the ball is. And so the attitude of the batter changes significantly then, and they will almost always choose an attacking shot. And so that would be the one instance where those stats would probably skew it, a little. It'd be really interesting to see how many front foot no balls get bowled in, say, a T20 or one-day match where a free hit is given compared to a test match where no free hit's given and there's yep. no major penalty towards the bowl. Like, imagine a test match, you bowl a front foot no ball or a no ball in general. And you get a free hit from it. Yeah, I maybe. betcha. I betcha people will be putting their foot well behind that line every Clean time. It up. Maybe they should introduce it into Test cricket. It's getting a bit ridiculous, know. personally. Mm. And maybe it's just my background of like I've done um, reserves for five years, and I was just drummed into me that you train how you fight and fight how you train. When you're doing your training, if you're not doing something right, well, that's just going to be pushed through to when you. Yeah, yeah. it's just. Train how you play. It's a very um, interesting point you raise around like train the way you play. And it's interesting to have this conversation in the context of bowling because every time I've heard someone talk about train the way you play, it's been a batting context and it's been all about the nets. When you get in the nets, you know, to try and improve your (laughs) attitude and execution, just pretend that it's a game. And then if if you edge one or you get bowled, then you've got to to go and sit down. And so that is a way of sharpening your attention. And um yeah, look, and well, I'm I'm a culprit. When we're down the nets, I, I'm not taking the bowling very seriously because it's not something that I do. But, you know, I just run in and roll the arm over. I'm not paying any attention to yeah. where my front foot is. And, but and but you, you, don't, you don't claim yourself being a bowler. Like, that's, that's why true, yeah. okay. I know I when I'm down at the nets, I, I rip into blokes that are bowling front foot, no balls, and not just by a little bit, by a fair bit. And I'm just like, hey, like, come on, you can't do that. And everyone starts ridiculing me. It's like, oh, you got to leave him alone. Like, you <laughs> yeah. can't. It's like, no, like, it's not that, you're the no ball Nazi you. down the nets. Oh, I, I, totally. And I am. And I'll, I'll back myself every time. But the, this, the thing is, like, I know I, I rip into Lucky all the time, the spinner that plays with us down the nets. Like, and he's he's actually gotten a lot better. He doesn't bowl front foot no balls anymore because every time he used to, I said, that's 10 push-ups, mate. You're doing 10 push-ups at the end of it. And he's now, <laughs> he's starting to get his foot behind the line. So, I mean, get out in the field every time they bowl no ball, do like 30 push-ups. I bet you they'll stop doing it. Jeff, were you in the army? Did, did they do push-ups in the army? <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's just a, it's just a formal punishment, mate. No, no. No, I'm just, yeah. I'm no. reserves, man. Big difference. No, no, Fredo. I mean, like, Fredo, I don't want you to think we're really because of you, mate. Um, uh, I, th- I, think, I think all of the players in our net appreciate it. When things get awkward is when you start, when we start getting behind the line, Fredo doesn't give up. He goes to the neighbouring net and starts to tell them That's about right. their nobles. Everyone hey, hey. within um, a five kilometre radius yeah, is on the radar. Where is your foot? Where is your foot, mate? <laughs> Do you know you're high on a front foot no ball? Do you know that Fredo actually, it's the only time I ever see Fredo a little bit passive aggressive. Like uh, <laughs> some guy will come in, at, some guy will bowl a no ball and Fredo will just be waiting there for him to come back to the mark. And Fredo was like, that was a no ball there, mate. <laughs> and this guy's like <laughs> looking at Fredo, has no idea who he is. Yeah, he had no goes, idea. Goes, oh, you were, about, you were about two foot over the line, mate. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely think there's um, something in this um, train the way you play uh, theory. No, definitely. So, something interesting happened the other day, actually, and it was in a game that um, Alex was playing in over at Indrapilly, and this is going back about a month ago. One of the guys over there playing for Alex's team, Mark 
how do you say Mark's last name? Is it is it Hugh or Mark Howe? Yeah, I'm not sure. Howell, anyway, I think. Mark Howe. He was batting and he had quite a good innings. He scored 30 or 40 through the middle overs of the game. And he really set the game up for South to have a win that. And after yeah. he got out, I was standing on the sideline having a chat with Mark. And he he said, oh, you know, today I reckon I faced about 10 overs in my innings, 10 or 12 overs for my 30, 40 runs or whatever it was. And he said, I reckon that's about the same amount of deliveries that I face in the nets when we train. And he said, yeah. I think maybe my concentration just dipped off a little bit once I went past that amount of deliveries that I faced because mentally that's that's the limit of balls I'm used to facing. I guess, you know, he's suggesting that maybe if I want to bat longer and hit, get more runs, I should be hitting more balls in training. I remember him saying that and I remember yeah. thinking, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, like, I think that there was something famous about Hussey who was told if he wants to get better, you've got to go and bat all day in the nets. And so I think he actually went out one day and actually batted the whole day in the nets. Like, right. a, like a whole, he probably had lunch or whatever and tea like they do in a test match, but he just stayed in the nets all day. Yep. Um, and I think that's, that's right. It does build your, yeah. uh, your concentration. And it is a unique thing when you bat for a long period of time, like switching the concentration on and off, standing out in the sun for yep. extended periods. And it is very hard to replicate that in training. That's all your brain does. It, it grabs something that you've trained for for however many times and it goes, what instance have I used this before? And that's where it's grabbing every time you're doing something. Mm. Yeah. And that's just the training and the repetition of doing something. Yeah. And it's not muscle memory. The muscles don't have memory. So it's just the uh, brain. I, for I forgot that Fredo has something about muscle memory. He doesn't <laughs> like the term. <laughs> I didn't know that Fredo had a theory about uh, muscle memory. It's, just, it's not a theory. He doesn't like the term. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so it's your brain that has memory and it's grabbing something that you've done many, many times before. I think it's, it's if you create a, a, a routine or a, a habit, you have to do something a thousand times, I think it is. So it's about just doing something over and over and over. That's how you get that memory per se that is formed into your muscles, if you want to call it that. It's interesting, right? A human will respond to a situation and look in, as you say, in the memory in the library of, re of responses that are available to deal with yep. it and just pick yep. one off the shelf. That's interesting because that's exactly how an AI model works for the most part. Um, yeah. You know, it looks at very similar circumstances that have happened before based on data. And then I, did, I want to congratulate us guys. We've officially become a podcast because now we're doing tangents. Because remember, we were talking about no balls a second ago. <laughs> yeah, we have now right. progressed to the level of tangents. Yeah, train the way you play. Um, it's, it's AI. It's all related, mate. It's all related to the it. sticks um, at the end of the, the pitch. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so very interesting. Um, Obviously, you know who it is, Josh, but I don't think Fredo knows. Um, Fredo, who's the person who's bowled the most no balls since 2002? Would it be – is it an Australian? <laughs> no, it wasn't an Australian. Give me a country. India. India. Oh, you guys yeah. did say this, and I cannot remember his name. Uh, Ishan Sharma. He's bowled 314 no balls, played just over 100 test matches. Number two is actually Brett Lee, who's bowled 306 no balls. If you divide it by the number of games played, um, Brett Lee actually bowls more per game than Ishan Sharma. Brett Lee bowls about four no balls per game, oh. which I thought was <laughs> You've ruined it for me, mate. I was a Brett Lee fan up until that point. You know what? I have um, a theory. Yeah. Can I? Can I, yeah, can go, I go, go, my go. theory about yeah. Brett Lee? I think his bowling action, he's got what's called a locked front leg. So bowlers typically, fast bowlers will have a bent front leg when the front foot lands or a locked one. It's classical locked front leg with Brett Lee. And because he's an express bowler, one of the fastest bowlers ever, and he really sprints into the crease, 
when he's in delivery stride and he's planting that front foot. I heard that a physician told him that eight times his body weight was going through his front ankle when he was planting mm. his front foot. And because of all that force and speed, his front foot actually slides along the pitch quite a bit when he lands it. And so I think that may have something to do with the prevalence of no balls because actually now that I mentioned that, there's probably a good point for clarification here. I think with the no ball front foot ruling, so long as your foot lands behind the so, front line, it's it's fine to slide, slide across up. it, and that's still considered to be a fair delivery. Am I Didn't right? Didn't they change that a while ago, or was it always been that rule? I thought they changed that where they said, oh, if you land behind the line and you slide over, it's not a no ball anymore. No, that's true. If you land behind the line and you slide over, that's fine. Yeah. And I think that Josh makes a good point in that perhaps some of the balls, Bradley Bold, he actually did start behind the line, but it seems like in that situation, because he's so fast and he slides so far, mm. it would be very hard for the umpire to tell where the slide started and whether yes. he had the ball in his hand or not. Maybe some of Bretley's balls that were called no balls weren't no balls at all because the umpire's only got a fraction of a second to look down. They're much more likely to see where his foot ends rather than yeah. where it starts in the process yeah. of, of checking the front foot. Uh, the rabbit hole. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> we're very much Australian apologists here because we have enough for Ishan Sharma any sort of uh, any sort of help. We're yeah, no, we just want to talk about Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, who is the spinner? He's in the top 30 in terms of people who have bowled no balls. Played quite a few test matches, um, but not the most test matches the spinner's ever played, I think. I feel like what you said before around the stats is most like whoever's had the, the longest career probably has bowled the most amount of no balls. And if we're considering that, Murley has yeah. to be in the conversation because he's played millions of tests. So that's interesting you say that because we look at James Anderson, for example, he's played, I think, almost close to 180 tests. Is that right? Yeah. So he's actually, he's actually played 179 tests. So if he plays tomorrow, the Oval would have been playing his 180th test. He's only bowled 46 no ball. That's only like a quarter of a no ball per game. So getting back to my question, the spinner with the most no balls since 2002 is Anil Comble, who's bowled 136 no balls. I mean, he's played, I think, close to that in test matches. So it's about on a game or a little bit more, I think. Everyone else is a pacer. In the top 30, Anil Comble is only spinner to have bowled a significant amount of no balls. I did want to yeah. point out that um, Lords has had the most no balls bowled, but I think that might be something to do with a couple more test matches being played there than elsewhere. But in terms of Australia, Sydney has significantly more no balls than any other test location in Australia. Why is it that Sydney has more no balls and... My theory is that, you know, the pink test happens on, is it New Year's Day or the day after? And so all the bowlers are still <laughs> drunk. <laughs> <That's why. laughs> and it's interesting you mentioned Lords too. Quite often in our cricket, when we play on different fields, the bowlers will be particular about the end that they want to bowl from. And that's not often to do with the pitch conditions, but it's to do with the approach to the crease. Mm. A lot of bowlers don't yeah, like definitely. fields where it's, it's a real uphill run. And so they'll, they'll want to bowl from the end where it's flatter. And at Lords, it's famously on a slope. And so I wonder whether that's off-putting to bowlers when they approach the crease to just getting their rhythm. If I know it's probably only quite a mild slope. But yeah, I wonder whether that's a, has something to do with it. Adjust and overcome. <laughs> Don't use that as an excuse. Sorry. <laughs> just fill in the airtime for conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate the segue. Yeah, so the last question I wanted to ask you guys, we've worked out there's a bit about 1.5 million balls bought into 
Test cricket since 2002. And of those, a little under 10,000 of them have been no balls. So that's 9,577. So we all know that the only way you can get it off no ball is run out. So how many run outs do you think there have been off no balls in that time? I'm going to go with 150. Just checking out. that big. I was going to go about, I don't know, 50. If that. <laughs> okay. 150 is a lot, dude. It is, but how many did you say there was been 10,000 no balls bowled? Is that what you said? Yeah. So 150 would be 150. over over 1% of the no balls so yeah. would be a run out. This year I say 10, I was like, oh, shit, maybe, maybe we need to increase that. A bit. Maybe 50 is a better guess. Right? <laughs> 50 is better. Okay. Mm. That's a um, lot of terrible running. For I, I, re- I reckon it's got to be 10. Like, how many run outs are there in the game? Seriously. How much is it, Alex? Put it out of our misery. Yeah, put us out of our misery. It is six. Six <laughs> times. That's what I mean. <laughs> wow. There wouldn't be that many run outs in a game. And then yeah. you got to think yeah. off a no ball. Like, that's. But isn't there so, um, a saying in cricket, like, never take a run on a no ball? Isn't that like. No, it's just, don't run on a misfield, isn't it? Oh, yeah, don't run on a misfield. <laughs> How many times don't have you run, run out, on Josh? any kind of mishap? <laughs> <laughs> Unless the ball's standard, don't do anything. Uh, one interesting thing here is that uh, a usual suspect, I believe there was something about Steve War being involved in a lot of run outs. That's a thing, right? Yep, that's a thing. And um, it's yeah, with so his he's brother actually, Mark as well, right? Well, this, was, uh, this one was actually with um, Damien Martin. In uh, 2003, at, at the Gabba. It's actually happened twice at the Gabba. And the other time was Steve Smith and Brad Haddon. I mean, that was in 2014. Most recently, 2022 in India, it was only in the second over and it was a no ball. And Mayank Agarwal and Rohit Sharma are batting and Mayank Agarwal was run out. That's a pretty bad start to a test match if oh. you're getting run out off a no ball in the second over. That's um, my take. Did you have anything, Josh? Uh, we're going to try and make this a bit of a regular segment. So what's my homework uh, for the next week, or have you still not, not decided? What I really want to know about is statistics for players who play away from home. What we see in mm-hmm. test cricket these days is that hosting nations are cooking the conditions as much to their own advantage as possible. And so the stats of everyone for games played at home are very favourable. What separates the real professionals from from the also-rans is how well they perform abroad. So I'm keen to know who's the best performer as a bowler and as a batter uh, in tests away from home. I I love this homework, mate. I'm going to make you proud, Dad. (laughs) <laughs> did, did, did I say that out loud? <laughs> Mate, it makes me feel so awkward, but anyway, well, that's fine. <laughs> um, but we have, what we have to do before we go, mate, is uh, this cricketing week. Do you want to start us off, Freda? Yeah, man, I've, I've seen a couple of little things. Um, first one is I think uh, Coley has played his 500 uh, international matches. And in his 500 match, he's uh, scored 100, which I think he is on par with beating Tendulkar's. I think Tendulkar was into the 600 games and hitting 100 hundreds in his 600-something games. So, uh, Coley, sorry, played 500 games and he's hit 75 hundreds. So, he's on on track to beating the old Sachin Tendulkar. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think Brad um, Coley is probably going to be one of the greatest ODI batsmen of all time. He's not as good a test player as Tendorka or even as Smith or Williamson or Rudis, yeah. but he's just a phenomenal ODI player. And that's, uh, I think, where a lot of his hundreds come from. 
Josh, um, what have you noticed uh, in cricket this week? So I'm going to stay on the Indian theme. I noticed that uh, there's been a little bit of press about Rishabh Pant making a recovery. For those who don't remember, in um, well, I guess to the Australian audience, Rishabh Pant is a little bit famous because in the Indian tour of Australia in season 2020, 2021, he batted India to victory to beat Australia at the Gabba to win the series for India in Australia for the first time in a long time. It was thanks to a very quick 89 when they were chasing 329 in the final innings there. But shortly after that, December 30th, 2022, he was in a head-on car collision and he nearly lost his life. Big leg injury. Um, and so he has been in recovery ever since. And just in the last couple of weeks, there's been some footage that has emerged of him doing rehab. Apparently, he is well ahead in his recovery and could be making a comeback as early as next year. Some people were even saying maybe he would be back for the World Cup, which is coming up at the end of this year, but that's still considered to be unlikely. News coming out of the Indian camp about when people are back from injury is always very mm-hmm. opaque because Boomer has been meant to be back for like the last six months. Yeah. Uh, in every significant piece of cricket that comes along, it's like, yeah, it would probably be good for that. And then doesn't play. Didn't play in the IPL, didn't play in the World Test Championship, didn't play in the Test Series in, in the West Indies. So my piece of cricket is, again, to do with the MLC. So I think the second highest wicket taker in the MLC is a person called Cameron Gannon. Anyone ever heard of him? Rings a bell. So Cameron Gannon actually played... Uh, he's from Sydney, but he's a bit like Kawaja. He came down to, and has played Sheffield Shield cricket for Queensland for quite a long time, and then he moved over to WA. So he's a bit of a journeyman because I think, you know, he obviously had ambitions to play for Australia early on, but he actually got no balled very early in his career because of his bowling action. He was found to have had an illegal bowling action after getting the most wickets in a Sheffield Shield season around 2010, 2011. Had to go back, fix his action. So he's he's played in some overseas, sort of not the the highest of the T20 leagues, uh, but he's been doing well. He's got some wickets in Western Australia. And I think he's he's now begun playing cricket for the US because he has some, I think he might have married an American. But yeah, he is the highest wicket taker in the MLC at the moment with 10 wickets and doing very well. I think that's a good story because to, to remodel your action as a fast bowler when he was flexing his uh, his his arm back 20, more than 25 degrees is a really big achievement. And I think it's really good to see those kind of stories in cricket where somebody, you know, a journeyman gets through and, and, and has some really big success. I think that that's really good. Reckon it's a pretty good conversation tonight. Loved our no ball chat. Very excited about the fifth test coming up at the Oval. People are calling it a dead rubber, but I don't think that it's really a dead rubber at all. There's still a lot on the line. If England win this test and and get the scores back to two all for the series, we'll be hearing much more from them about how they really won the series from a moral perspective and also performance on the field. So. If you guys are like me, I'm desperate to see Australia win because I don't want to sit through all of that. Desperate, desperate to, see. to see them win and desperate to see them come out to Australia and get flogged 5-0 again. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. It's, it's classic <laughs> English exceptionalism, right? The greatest Ashes series of all time was, of course, one that England narrowly won in England. And it was yeah. maybe the only series that they won in, in a 15-year window. Uh, and Australia thrashed them 5-0 in the very next series back out in Australia. But, of course, no one talks about that. Uh, the the only thing uh, worthy of note is things that happen on English soil and winning wins. So yeah, they, they do control the narrative very well. Hey mate, something that happened on English soil. Uh, England didn't win at Lords for seventy five years, so you <laughs> yeah, can that's... shove that up. 
Against Australia, though, right? Against Australia, Ashes. They've not yeah. been in Australia yeah. in 75 years. From 1930-something to, like, 2009, I think it was. Yeah, yeah right. That Lords. Is, that is an amazing stat. So they can- well, we, should, we should go and play at Rords. With that sort of stat, we, we, uh, <laughs> we're, we're yeah. a decent showing. We got we got history on our side. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> get on the honors boards. Yeah, down, I'm everybody. not living in. I'm not living in reality. <laughs> <laughs> that was good, guys. Well, that's where we shall uh, chat to you next time. Okay, see you, see you later, boys. See ya.